Hello, fellow Rebel Capitalists. Hope you're well. So we're going to dive into some money printing and hyperinflation today. Actually, let me start the video by answering this question. When will the Fed's money printing and the government's deficit spending create hyperinflation? Well, as far as the Fed's money printing, that answer, the answer there would be never. Why? Because the Fed doesn't print money. Or does it? I mean, this is the debate back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So what we need to understand is how the Fed's balance sheet does and does not impact M2. Because when most people are talking about money printing, they're talking about it in terms of will it impact inflation, consumer price inflation. And you guys know that the uh, consumer price inflation has been going down, going up. It's this roller coaster ride. So if you want to predict what the prices are going to do, then you've got to understand how many currency units are chasing goods and services. So then the question becomes, okay, does the Fed's balance sheet impact the number of currency units, let's just say M2, that are chasing goods and services? And the answer is it depends. But if you don't understand the nuance, there's no way you're going to be able to predict the probabilities of inflation going up, consumer prices going up, or consumer prices going down. And you're definitely not going to be able to predict hyperinflation. <laughs> and the reason I said never is because under the current system, that would be almost impossible. Now, if we go to a CBDC, okay, now we've kind of got to reassess the probabilities. But under the current system, that's incredibly difficult, if not impossible. So what I want to go through first is let's understand, quote unquote, money printing, understand how the Fed's balance sheet does and does not impact M2. And then if you're one of those people that always push back and says, George, it really doesn't matter at the end of the day. Why are you talking about this? This is a, a distinction without a difference. You, you just get so into the weeds when it really doesn't matter. Who cares if the banks print the money or the Fed prints the money? It just doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The number of currency units are going up. Okay. Well, let's actually go through some history <laughs> and see when it actually mattered. Mattered quite a bit. But let's start by looking at why people think that this is a a, a a distinction without a difference, if that's the right term, that's the right phrase. And it all starts with this money multiplier idea. And this is, again, why a lot of the sound money types always say, well, the definition of inflation, not consumer prices, the definition of inflation is the money supply going up, the money supply. And if the Fed is increasing their balance sheet, they're increasing base money, and therefore, because the money multiplier we are going to have an increase of currency units, M2. It's just inevitable. It's a matter of time. And if we don't see an increase in consumer prices, then the stock market goes up. It's just inflation is in a different area because the banks are lending more because they have more capacity, because there are more bank reserves, because the Fed has been printing money. <laughs> this is the argument <laughs> that you hear all the time, right? So again, this money multiplier is the idea. Here's uh, Investopedia. Deposit multiplier is a maximum amount of money bank can create in the form of checkable deposits for each unit of money 
of reserves. So if they have more reserves, then they can create more currency units. So what happens is that the Fed comes in and creates more reserves, then that allows the banks to create way, way, way more money. So why are we differentiating between base money and broad money? It doesn't even matter, George. It's all about base money because there's a direct correlation between the two is the argument. So as you guys know, probably from watching <laughs> my videos or just doing a quick Google search, you can tell that this is just unequivocally false. Uh, just look at the Fed's balance sheet. Just look at M2 money supply. Uh, it is true. There's a strong correlation in 2020. Outside of that, almost uh, almost a zero correlation, especially if you're looking at uh, you know the 1940s to the to 2007. I mean, call it 60 years, uh, six decades, no correlation whatsoever. And this idea creates a lot of problems for people because it assumes that everything revolves around the Fed. So if the Fed wants there to be more currency units. Well, the Fed is going to make that decision, and therefore, they're going to create more reserves, and the banks are going to lend more just based on what the Fed is kind of signaling, right? Or maybe it's through the uh, adjusting the uh, the interest rate. Then this would imply that if the interest rates are low, well, then money is going to explode higher because the banks are going to be lending a lot more. And if the interest rates are high, then money is going to be crashing because no one's borrowing. When we look at the 1970s and we see that interest rates were very high, but money supply growth, M2, was growing very, very quickly as well. So there's times when that's also not true, and that requires quite a bit of nuance. But let, don't take my word on it. Let's get right into the Fed's uh, own website here. And this is from a paper. And they did these summaries. I'm sure they still do it. This is from the NewYorkFed.org. Uh, and open market operations during 1995. This is a summary of all the open market operations they did. And back in the day, prior to QE, these open market operations is how they would get the interest rate, Fed funds, where they wanted it. So let me go ahead and start with just reading the intro because this gives you a lot of insights here. So during 1995, the trading desk, Federal Reserve Bank, New York, managed reserves conditions with an objective maintaining federal funds rate around the level desired by the FOMC. The need for permanent reserve additions was much lower than in preceding few years, mostly reflect, reflecting an unanticipated sharp slowing in currency growth and a reduction in reserve requirements caused by sweet programs of commercial banks. Temporary operations are used to meet modest and short-lived swings in, in reserve supply and demand. Wait a minute here. Wait, 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 wait. If the Fed creates a certain amount of reserves and then the banks look at that and they say, oh, wow, now we, now we can create more loans or, oh, shoot, now we can't create as many loans. Why would the Fed say temporary operations are used to meet reserve supply and demand? Demand? Well, I thought that didn't matter. I thought the Fed was the center of the monetary universe. <laughs> See what happens here? And let's get... Let's get down into the article. I'm not going to obviously read this whole thing here. So right here, implementation of policy and carrying out FOMC policy directives, the desk sets, seeks to maintain the federal funds rate around the level indicated by the committee. Keeping the funds rate close to a desired level entails using open market operations to adjust the system's portfolio of domestic securities to ensure that the total reserve liabilities of the Federal Reserve are in line with the reserve demands of depository 
institutions. Huh? Well, you guys, you guys know what depository institutions are, don't you? That would be the banks. <laughs> so what we could see here played as day, and I could go through the whole summary, and it would say it over and over and over and over and over again. But you see what happened prior to QE is the banks would just go ahead and create loans, just as many loans as they wanted to create. There was no constraining them whatsoever. And even here, they admit that the reserve requirement wasn't even a constraint because they just came up with these sweep accounts to get around the stupid regulation. So the banks had just, they were not constrained at all, zero, not by reserves. The only thing they were constrained by is having people to lend to that they thought would pay them back. That was the only constraint. <laughs> that's it. So that's why I always say it goes back to counterparty risk. But that, so what would happen is the banks would lend, 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 and then the Fed would set back and say, hmm, how much are the banks lending? Okay, well, we think, based on what they've done over the last three months, that they'll do X, Y, Z over the next three months. And if they do that, then in order to maintain the Fed funds, at let's say 3% or 4% or whatever, we're going to have to add this many reserves to the system to make sure the banks have enough reserves for the lending that we think they're going to do. It's the complete opposite, the complete opposite. <laughs> or the Fed doesn't dictate or doesn't determine the amount of lending. No, no, no. The banks determine the amount of reserves based on the lending. See? So in this case, is the Fed printing money? No. They're just, they're just an innocent bystander. <laughs> the banks are doing everything right here. Now, this is why I say it requires nuance because you can't just sit there and say the Federal Reserve never prints money. See, I said the Fed doesn't print money. I said, or does it? And the answer is it depends, right? So let's fast forward to 2020 where the Fed was buying assets from a non-bank entity, assuming that what we're trying to focus on here is an increase in M2. Because again, it's all about inflation. We're trying to determine how many currency units are out there chasing goods and services. Well, when the Fed buys from a non-bank, that is going to impact M2. So in that case, then I think it's fair to say the Fed is, quote unquote, money printing. But let's keep in mind, it's not just the Fed. It's any bank. If Wells Fargo buys a treasury from you, that's money printing. It increased M2 money supply, even though they didn't lend it into existence. So it's not just the Fed, it's any bank. And therefore, all banks have the ability to print money. So the question becomes, okay, if there are times when the Fed, when the Fed's balance sheet is impacting M2, and then there are times when the Fed's balance sheet is not, then what's the determining factor here? And the answer is it's usually just a crisis situation. So if we go back to World War II, then yes, it is true. The Fed's balance sheet impacted M2 along with the government deficit spending. But then you go to the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, all the way to 2007. So let's call it 57 years, 57 years. The Fed's balance sheet had zero impact on M2. So again, do they print money? Do they not? Well, it depends. Are we in a crisis situation? And if we're not in a crisis situation, 
like a 2007 as an example, or a 2020 or World War II, then you can see how the Fed's balance sheet has almost zero impact on the amount of currency units chasing goods and services. So I would say a more accurate description is 95% of the time, the Fed's balance sheet does not impact M2. Therefore, it's not money printing, even if they expand it. And 5% of the time, it is. That, that's, that's historically speaking. Again, if they create a CBDC, then it's a completely, completely different story. Hey guys, I want to remind you to check out Rebel Capitalist Pro. This is the incredible online investment forum that I have with investment experts, Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh. It includes professionals such as Patrick Ceresna from Macro Voices. He specializes in options. Tony Greer, commodity trading. Jason Hartman, real estate. And Brent Johnson with Macro Economics. If you want to build wealth and thrive in this world of out-of-control central banks and big governments, Rebel Capitalist Pro is the resource you need. So check it out today at georgegammon.com forward slash pro. That's georgegammon.com forward slash pro. We'll see you inside with the fellow rebel capitalists that are taking their investing to the next level. So now that we've established that, let's go over times in history where if you were solely focused on the Fed's balance sheet, where you had this idea that the definition of inflation is an expansion of the money supply. That's it. That's it. Because if they expand the money supply, then you're debasing the currency. And therefore, you have to have consumer price inflation, at least at the same rate. So let's pull up the Fed's balance sheet. And the easiest example of this would be 2007, 2008, 2009. I'm sure... Most of you watching this video are old enough to remember that time. And what was the whole idea back then? And you see that this little bump up right here, it looks quaint, doesn't it? An increase in the Fed's balance sheet from 800 billion, let's say, up to 2.2 uh, billion or trillion, excuse me. It looks like, oh, well, that's so cute. But back at the time, this was mind blowing. I mean, the Fed just instantly doubled the size of its balance sheet. And if inflation, true definition of inflation is an expansion of the money supply, base money, the Fed's balance sheet, because we know that the banks are going to lend that much more because the multiplier, the money multiplier, and then they're going to be all these currency units chasing goods and services because it all started with the Fed's balance sheet because that's the center of the monetary solar system. What would you have predicted? You would have predicted hyperinflation. Or at the very least, you would have predicted massive amounts of inflation. And every single time the Fed did another round of QE, you would have predicted an, another wave of huge inflation to the likes the United States has never seen. But what did we have? Now, it is true that I, I totally agree with you that the CPI understates the rates of inflation. But did we have this wave of hyperinflation because the Fed doubled, tripled its balance sheet overnight? It didn't play out. In fact, another thing that you would have, a bet that you would have made in your actual portfolio is you would have shorted the heck out of bonds 
right? You just said, there's no way I'm buying bonds. I'd been a pretty good bet or excuse me. That would have been a very bad bet. Right. And then let's look at, uh, I don't have a chart of gold, but you guys know that it peaked out. What was it around 2000? It peaked out around 2011, 2012 at, at almost $2,000 or maybe a little higher than $2,000. But then think about this going into 2013, the fed's balance sheet goes from 3 trillion call it up to 4.4 trillion what would you have done again you said i'm not buying i'm going to i'm going to short bonds you would have short bonds you would have bought gold and let's not forget you would have shorted the dollar because again that this is this is money printing right this is money printing and what happened to gold it went <laughs> it went straight down what happened to bonds they went up what happened to the dollar? It went up as well. So you see a lot of people, again, they say that it doesn't matter, George, you're, you're, you're splitting hairs here, whether it's the Fed increasing M2 or the banks or whatever, this is just completely irrelevant. But when you actually look at the data, you, you see that it's not just uh, relevant, but it might be one of the most important concepts to understand about global macro. And it's definitely the most important concept to understand when it comes to the monetary system. But there's more. Let's go back and look at a history of the Fed's balance sheet. And here we are going back to, where are we? Oh, wow. 1933. And this upper area right here with the yellow, that is the asset side of the Fed's balance sheet. This is, you kind of got to get used to this a chart or pictograph or whatever. It's actually incredibly comprehensive, but you kind of got to get used to seeing it because they do the assets up here, liabilities, and they go down a notch for each uh, time frame, right? Because this is the time frame between 1915 and 1936. So we look at the amount of reserves, bank reserves, right here in pink is the liability side of the Fed's balance sheet starting in 1932, 1933. And what happened? Look at the amount of reserves. They go from, and again, these numbers seem quaint, <laughs> but, but you got to look at the percentage increase. Uh, we go from, looks like around 2 billion. Wow, imagine that, 2 billion. Uh, as far as the amount of reserves in the system, 2 billion with a B in 1933. And then, Three years later, we go from $2 billion to almost $8 billion. So think about that in terms of a percentage. I mean, you basically, uh, to, you 4X'd the size of the amount of reserves. And therefore, I mean, we've got the money multiplier. And as you guys know, as you guys know, the, the, the definition of inflation is an expansion of the money supply. And if you're Assuming that this is going to have, a, there's going to be a direct causal effect between the Fed's balance sheet and M2, then this is inflation right here. Base money, money multiplier, M2. It's all right here. So in the early 1930s, you would have assumed what? The Fed's balance sheet quadrupled. You would have expected massive inflation. You would have expected, in fact, way more inflation than you would have expected in 2008 and 2009. What happened in the 1930s? <laughs> ah, that's right. 
deflation prices crash. Now you can say that this was anti-deflationary and we would have had more deflate. Okay, fine. But that's not what, that's not the definition of inflation. It's just expansion of the money supply. So an expansion of the money supply isn't the definition of anti-inflation. It's the definition of inflation. And if we're being honest here, calling a spade a spade, the same people that looked at the Fed's balance sheet in 2007, 2008, 2009, if they would have looked at the Fed's balance sheet back here, they, they, my goodness, if you were, if you were predicting hyperinflation in 2009, what would you have been predicting in 1934? You see my point? So again, you would have shorted bonds. You would have done all these things and you would have been completely, totally wrong. Now, to be fair, it is true that if you looked at the Fed's balance sheet in 2020 and you saw it go up and you said, okay, well, we're definitely going to have inflation. And then I'm going to go ahead and short bond. Then you would have been right. Absolutely. I'm not saying that you're right or you're wrong 100% of the time or these people are wrong. I'm saying that sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. But basically, it, it, but it's not even 50-50. It's like maybe 80% of the time you're wrong and 20% of the time you're right. So that's a massive negative edge if we're looking at it in terms of just investing, right? You want to be right 80% of the time, not 20% of the time. So now let's go through and uh, look at a chart of the DXY. And by the way, if you would have been looking at the banking system, if you would have been looking at M2 during the 1930s, you would have done what? You would have predicted it smack on, or you would have been uh, just dead on here. So on this chart, we've got M2, the black line, and M2 pretty much flat from 1930 to call it uh, 36. And I'll bet you during that time, we did have prices go down. But uh, during that time, I'll bet you if you take the whole six-year period, although prices went down at the beginning, kind of started to go back up, probably would have been flat as well. So this would have been a much better indicator as far as what the banks are doing. And you would have completely ignored what the Fed was doing. And then you would have been much closer to being correct. Okay, now let's go to the dollar. And this again here, let's uh, actually, it's, excuse me, let's start with the Fed's balance sheet and let's look at it from, let's call it 2000, eh, let's just call it right around here, 2014, we're right around 4 trillion. And now we are at 8.3. Now, if I really wanted to be precise, I would look at the amount of reserves in the system, but I guarantee the amount of reserves is much higher. In fact, right off the top of my head, I know back here, it was, uh, what was it, around 2.4 or so. And then right around here, it's around 3.2. So we still had a substantial increase, not only in the size of the Fed's balance sheet, but a substantial increase in the amount of bank reserves. And again, with the money multiplier, that means that those banks are going to create more and more and more and more loans. And therefore, we're going to see massive amounts of inflation. And the dollar is going to tank. Well, if we go to the DXY since 2014, we see that it's gone from 80 up to 100. The dollar did the opposite of that. So I could go on and on and on giving you guys data. But the main takeaway here is that if you truly want to have an edge in investing, and if you truly want to understand how the global monetary system works, you, you've got to 
also understand that although the Fed balance sheet can impact M2, it absolutely can. 95% of the time, it has zero impact. And 95% of the time, the banks are the ones that are doing all the money printing. And the Fed is just revolving around whatever decision the banks are making. All right, guys, enjoy the rest of your afternoon. As always, make sure that you're standing up for freedom, liberty, free market capitalism. We'll see you in the next video.